In two days, the redhead would return to finish what she started in the tub. In two days, I would lose my virginity. And any other time but this, I'd be more than happy to indulge in the intimate details for your enjoyment. However, I don't really feel up to it right now. I promised your reader to return to the sexual escapades and physical violations that occurred on that farm soon enough. Ultimately, child services in Pine Harbor found Travis and Merrill Hall, a devout foster family that was willing to board us in their home, which sat nicely on the edge of our old school district. Their previous adoptee moved to Battery Park, leaving behind an emptiness in the Hall's home and hearts. Despite this, their souls were relentlessly full. For the sake of peace, stability, and a place to stay in town, were merely nodded and agreed any time the dinner table topic broached the religion. Our list of chores were long, but they respected my physical revulsion to dishwashing and let me work in the yard. Perhaps the most surprising of all was Worm's elation to return to the town that held so many horrific memories and anti-academic bullies. I'd somehow felt that he was uncomfortable at the farmhouse, but chalked it up to Worm being Worm. After all, if he wasn't an enigma, I thought, he wouldn't be Worm. I returned to junior high school, the tormented, deeply depressed ward of the state. And while this image was merely a misinterpretation by my seventh grade peers, I let it work to my advantage. The teacher's turgid sympathy buoyed the grades that Worm didn't fix for me, and a seemingly endless line formed to provide me with the tender comfort of female attention. My preference for older girls and the rebelliousness of their teenage years quickly led me to enter the ninth grade sexually while remaining in the seventh grade physically. Much to the chagrin of my 11-year-old classmates, my body was exploring biology and anatomy while my mind struggled through earth sciences, and my formal training in sexual education only came after four years of practical exams. Worm's perception of the world and the world's reception of him remained largely unchanged from before the fire. To my unending surprise, he'd grown slightly more social than before. My brother began to reach out for some point of connection, in retaliation for the invisible umbilical cord he clipped between us. The days that he spoke only Zeniva became few. He engaged the junior high drama teacher, and with her signature, petitioned the principal to let him skip gym class, the success of which resulted in an empty period for Worm to perform an independent study. There he tried his hand at writing for broadcasting, and ironically found himself the voice of the Daily Review. The supervisor, also responsible for the school paper and semi-annual literary magazine, continually pled with Worm to simplify the language to the seventh-grade reading level, where myself and the rest of our class comfortably remained. It is a standard observed by most respectable journalistic entities, he'd say, including the New York Times. Was it not for his reluctant permission to let Worm assume position as literary mag editor-in-chief and continue an esoteric column, quote, before the sports section, unquote, of the school paper, Worm would have walked out. Apparently, the fourth estate was too small for Worm's expanding mind. The column was called Jibreel's Trumpet. I have no idea why or what that means and it quickly caught the attention of the high school journalism teacher, his community college professor counterpart, and the entire editorial staff at the Pine Harbor Sun. At first, there arose a collective cry of plagiarism. When an informal quorum met with Worm to debunk this ruse, 
They emerged 15 minutes later, promising my brother columns in all three rags. At this rate, I thought, it wouldn't be long before Worm was protesting the 7th grade reading level with the times themselves. Our relationships strained, Worm and I. In school, we pretended we didn't know each other. At home, we spotted each other briefly on opposing sides of windows as he scrubbed the walls and I weeded the flower boxes. Conversations became few as we both found we had little to discuss. I'd leave my homework on his bunk before going to bed, and he'd have it packed in my bag before I arose. He'd walk away with barely a nod after my Procrustean intervention with bullies that criticized his peculiarity. To get a thank you, blood would need to be drawn, though it mattered not whose it was. Our different agendas transformed us to even look less like twins, where the yard work left me tanned and toned, and his indoor tasks blanched him further. Worm grew his hair long to cover his eyes, and I kept mine cropped in a military crew. Sometimes people even doubted that we were related, much less twins. As the months passed since Mom's institutionalization as Sleepy Pines Asylum, our nighttime ritual of keeping watch slowly loosened and released the stranglehold. The hours where Worm and I used to talk whittled and waned down to common pleasantries. We awoke in calmer seas under brighter stars, clutching still the shattered remains of the shipwreck far beyond each other's sight. The tragedy of our lives had made us the polar opposites that we were born to be, mirror image twins in every way definable. Sess checked in once a month to relay the news of our mother's unchanged condition and ask if we were eating okay. She reminded us frequently of the extravagant cost she was contributing to keep your mother in a proper care facility. She would say this with inferred blame, as though her own relationship to our mom mattered little. It sounded like the accusations of a divorcee more than the concerns of a caring sibling. She mined the mediating children for further evidence that our separation was justified, our mistreatment vindicated. She martyred herself at her charity and requested only our regular visits to the farmhouse to justify the expense. Worm thankfully honored her wishes and asked nothing of my participation. Fortunately, Aunt Sess refused to give our mom the foster family's number, and so we were further distanced from the insanity that our lives once were. When the time came to cut off my cast, my last physical reminder of the tragedy disappeared with the tan lines around my arm. The doctor pulled me aside and asked me, as a quivering guidance counselor had six months before, to take care of my brother. He needs you, the doctor said. The previous year, I would have barked his ineptitude back at him, but our recent attachment produced only a wave of comprehension with my atrophied left arm. The remainder of junior high was a blur of carnal exploration, physical altercation, sexual experimentation, black eyes, broken hearts, and memory repression. For Worm, I assume it was his best and most successful year to date. I had heard that his escalating readership in the sun allowed him to double his written inches, thus doubling his income per story. And while I never read his editorials, I imagine they eluded our personal lives and focused mainly on philosophy, religion, and politics in the microcosm that was Pine Harbor. By the time that high school arrived, both me and Worm were aching for something new. He'd achieved all he could with the journalistic and literary scope of a middle schooler, and I'd nearly exhausted my supply of freshman girls. I tried out for the junior varsity football team and unexpectedly unseated an age-old rule that freshmen couldn't sit on the varsity bench. 
My size and stature didn't create this predicament, however. It was my speed and my temperament that brought me to the first string offensive line that September. I was quick and bobbery and burning for excuses. The coach referred to this in front of 40 or so upperclassmen looking at me with daggers as teamsmanship. I broke a tight end's nose when the speech didn't sink in, and they quickly welcomed me to the squad. Bedecked in the stiff, pungent leather of my high school letterman jacket, I found my world opened up to upperclassmen parties and women. I also began to receive preferential treatment for reasons other than my sordid past and my genius brother. Football alumni commonly returned to teach government, economics, and world history. Those were, curiously, the three classes where I garnered 4.0 averages. Worm, grateful to leave the radio announcements and junior high paper staff, took over the broadcasting writing for video announcements at Pine Harbor High and assumed position as editor-in-chief of our paper, The Albatross. Partially on a dare and partially to reweave myself in Worm's life and successes, I joined the broadcasting club and ascended to become an anchor for the morning announcements. My likable presence and photogenic smile on the TV screen propelled me to join the drama club. There, I landed in the starring role in Second Son, Worm's highly controversial and oft-misunderstood religious satire of which I've already spoken. Forgive me, gentle reader, as my lack of experience in long-form writing has apparently led me in a circle. My day's travels returned me as well to a B&B run by the daughter of a late friend of my mother's. Lying in bed, thumbing the edge of a hand rolled closed, I thought about the last glimpse of Worm before they covered his casket with mud. Memories of high school filled me with excitement of rebellion while I carefully channeled the smoke out the window of my non-smoking room. I've been writing all evening, and the hours have gotten away from me. I must, in the least, afford myself some time to reflect, spending my last moments of consciousness lingering on Miss Lacrosse's delicious curves before sleep takes over. The late hour, coupled with the pain in my hand, from this writing and old wounds, prevent the pleasure of too much fantasy on her rain-glistened breasts. Knowing what you know of me thus far, I hope you appreciate my sacrifice and the fruits it has created for you.